You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your host, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore. I'm an, uh, well, ooh, I am a professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I've been calling myself associate for five years now. Uh, I'm joined online today by Dr. David Grubbs. He is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are things? Pretty decent. Excellent. And coming at you from Minnesota, it's Dr. David, uh, Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English <laughs> at <laughs> Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Michael, is it going to be one of those days? Uh, apparently it is for you, Nathan. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you. Well, at any rate, on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, we've got a relatively quiet week going on. We do have a new City of Man episode uh, that is from a... An, a an academic conference on Batman, and listeners, if you thought Danny Anderson must be involved in that, you're right, but it's actually not on Sectarian Review. It's on City of Man, and it features Coyle Neal, uh, as well as a third panelist, and I am sorry, third panelist, uh, but you're not one of our podcasters, so I've forgotten your name. Michael, do you happen to remember the name of the third panelist? I do not. I'm sorry. All right. Well, at any rate, listeners, go listen to that. Maverick, it seems. Chris to Maverick. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yes. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Is um, that a real that, name? It sounds kind of like a Batman supporting character. It is an awesome professor name, I think. That That's the name I see. Like, does his, can you imagine his dean shouting that as he, <laughs> as he flies by the office? I, I was going to say it would have to involve an F-14, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, guys, is there anything else going on on the network this week? Do we have a uh, do we have a profiles, or have we Negative. have we at long last exhausted our endless store of profiles? We have on uh, wow. April twenty second. Uh, we finally uh, hit the last in our streak, unless I'm wrong, and there's another one coming out. Wow, I I, I don't have any in the chamber, so to speak. I think we I think we, I think we had a, a profiles every week for four months. We wow. did. That's January a, through April. It's amazing. We had a good run, you guys. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Well, at any rate, uh, today's show is about loyalty. Uh, as I hinted at at the end of our last episode, if you want to go listen to that one, uh, I've been uh, rolling some philosophical questions about loyalty around in my head. Uh, but today, I don't want to start with the abstraction called loyalty. Uh, I'd like to start literary, literary, pardon me, uh, namely with the figure of Wiglaf. So, David, who is this young warrior at the end of Beowulf, and what's the particular moral character of his loyalty that makes him interesting in that story? So, Wiglaf is sort of, speaking of Batman, Wiglaf gets to be Robin at the end of Beowulf. The epic of Beowulf is a, is a fascinating hero story because it, it feels as if, you know, imagine in sort of the, the contemporary comic book movie, somebody decided to do the origin story, and then after doing the origin story, did the end of career story, just immediately. Like, that was the follow-up. That's basically what Beowulf is. Young Beowulf fights two monsters... 50 plus years passes and then old you know Gandalf bearded King Beowulf fights a dragon but in order to fight that dragon he needs he needs assistance uh, that particular scene is one that I love to teach uh, because 
well, among, among other things, I, I, I love talking about how most of Beowulf's warriors have, have wet themselves, rusting their chainmail uh, off in the tree line. Um, except for this one, this one little character, uh, this one little guy named, uh, named Wheelof. Uh, Wheelof is described as a, an inexperienced warrior. This is his, this literally is his first battle. Uh, and as, as he is cowering with the rest of them, he has this change of heart. Um, the translation that I have in front of me is, uh, Roy Liuza's. Uh, it came to pass with piercing sorrow that the young warrior had to watch his most precious lord fare so pitifully, his life at an end. And so as he's watching this, this young man has, has a change of heart, he can't, um, there, and there's a number of things that he can't, he can't change. Um, uh, a number of things that he can't, uh, ig ignore about their relationship. One of them is kinship. Uh, he's actually related to Beowulf. Uh, Beowulf spe uh, speaks of, uh, of Wheelof and himself as being the last survive survivors of this group called the Waymundings, which seems to be sort of a, I don't know, a sub-clan? Something like that, of the Geats? So, uh, kinship is part of it. But the biggest part of it is what often is called the heroic code. Um, the way this, the warrior society within Beowulf is described as working is that you have a king who is, who is a warlord, a hero who's kind of made it big, and has developed, uh, has collected enough sidekicks that he has an, an army that's personally loyal to him. And he's built a hall, which is kind of a big party place for him and his dudes, um, and that's the center of royal power. And the way that royal, pow royal power works is that the warriors, Thanes, are personally loyal to the king, and the king is loyal to them. The Thanes manifest their loyalty to the king by fighting to defend uh, the rights that he asserts against uh, outsiders, uh, and the king is loyal to them by dispensing the treasure that is won as a result of victory. So uh, the heroic code is based on this mutual loyalty of King and Thane. And Wheelof, um, one of the things that it specifically says uh, that he remembers is that he remembers the honors that he's been given and the treasures that, that have been bestowed on him. So uh, Wheelof is interesting as a, as a place, as, as a, a point to start for this conversation, because he has a number of different, uh, different touch points for loyalty. He's personally loyal to Beowulf, who's a hero he looks, he's, he's looked up to all his life. Uh, he's related to Beowulf, so there's familial loyalty. Um, he is within a kind of political and social community, um, defined by loyalty, the heroic code. Um, and all of these things are working together to make him, the young warrior with no experience, be the one who steps up and fights the dragon along with the old hero. Well, very good. I want to get another character in our listeners' minds, and that's Huckleberry Finn. So, Michael, talk our listeners through a couple signature moments in Twain's novel that show what loyalty looks like and what loyalty doesn't look like. Sure. Um, the big one, and the one I imagine you had in mind when you asked me this question, uh, comes My in, mind is a short read. <laughs> comes in Chapter 31 of Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. And, I mean, I'm sure our, our readers know the basic plot of this novel, but Huck has escaped down the river with a runaway slave named Jim, and he is dealing with the conflict between what his society tells him is right and wrong and thus the loyalty maybe he owes to his society uh, versus the loyalty he owes toward this man who has been his friend this whole time they've been on the raft, right? So he has, he has loyalty on the one hand to a concrete existing person and on the other hand loyalty to a uh, particular conception of morality, which of course um, involves the premise that 
you shouldn't try to escape from slavery. So Huck is trying to figure out what to do, and he actually writes out a, a letter uh, to the person who owns Jim, and he tell he tells her where where he is, where Jim is, uh, and how uh, how they can catch him. And then I'm I'm just gonna read from the novel. I felt good and all washed clean of sin for the first time I had ever felt so in my life, and I knowed I could pray now. But I didn't do it straight off, but laid the paper down and sat there thinking, thinking how good it was all this happened so and how near I come to being lost and going to hell. Because right, he's, he's accepted this notion that if he helps Jim escape, he's breaking the laws of man and thus the laws of God and he's going to go to hell. And went on thinking and got to thinking over our trip down the river and I see Jim before me all the time. In the day and in the nighttime, sometimes moonlight, sometimes storms, and we are floating along, talking and singing and laughing. But somehow I couldn't seem to strike no places to harden me against him, but only the other kind. I'd see him standing my watch on top of his set a call in me so I could go on sleeping and see him how see him how glad he was when I come back out of the fog and when I come to again again in the swamp up there where the feud was and such like times and would always call me honey and pet me and do everything he could think of for me and how good he always was and at last I struck the time I saved him by telling the men we had smallpox aboard and he was grateful and said I was the best friend old Jim ever had in the world and the only one he's got now and then I happened to look around and see that paper it was a close place. I took it up and held it in my hand. I was a-trembling because I'd got to decide forever betwixt two things, and I knowed it. I studied a minute, sort of holding my breath, and then I says to myself, All right, then, I'll go to hell, and tore it up. And this is this is the point at which he chooses the the concrete existing person. That's why he's thinking about all these things, all these experiences he's had with Jim. He chooses this person whom he loves over the law that he fears or abstractly knows is the right thing. Of course, as the reader, even in 1885, we would have known that the law was wrong. And so so we're uh, we're on Jim's side the whole time. But we watch Huck. Uh, slowly decide where his loyalty actually lies. Um, and it's actually, I really, I kind of flipped through the novel again to prepare for this. I, I had never noticed that there's a very similar scene at the beginning of the novel where uh, he's talking about Tom Sawyer and he asks, uh, oh, the widow Douglas, is that the woman uh, he lives with? He asks the widow Douglas yes. if, uh, if Tom Sawyer's going to heaven. And she says, no, I, I expect he'll be in the other place. And Huck, Hook says essentially, "Well, I'd rather go where Tom is than go to heaven," and so this is this is something he's been prepared for. Um, but there, it it seems less like an expression of loyalty and more childish. This is a an adult version of that. Like Huck has come into his own table of values based on uh, based on the events of his life and his uh, his feelings for this man. Is that what you had in mind, Nathan, or, or were you thinking... That, that's one of the scenes, but then at the end of the novel, I mean, he basically hands Jim over to the whim of Tom Sawyer. Right, so he has he has this utter loyalty, or maybe he just thinks of it as... Um, he doesn't see that as a betrayal, right? We'll talk a little bit about that scene. Oh, I didn't prep that scene, and I have always hated the last five chapters of Huckleberry Finn, so I'm not sure yes. I can talk extemporaneously about it. Um, so I, I don't know that I can tell you so much about his motivation, but I, I don't know that Huck would read that as a uh, as a betrayal. Is that how you read it? Uh, I did, yeah. I mean, you know, this is... Uh, again, it's been several years since I've read it carefully, uh, but as I remember it, uh, it is Huck being willing to basically use Jim as bait in this, you know, plot of Tom Sawyer's uh, really without any concern about, you know, what might happen to Jim. So what was such a grave concern to him on the raft becomes no concern there at the end of the novel. Well, and it's interesting, too, because he's he's reverting to childhood in some ways, right? Because Tom Sawyer is playing these games that Huck goes along with reluctantly at the beginning of the novel. Uh, but apparently yeah. at the end just slides back in. I mean, this has always been my problem racially with that novel is that Twain... Twain is just fine letting a couple of 13, 14 year old boys push Jim around. But I, I did not think of that as a betrayal. I thought of it as just Huck not really being in control of the situation. He just kind of defers to Tom because Tom is Tom is the one with the quote unquote experience. He, he gets he 
has this experience from reading books, essentially. Right. I gotcha, I gotcha. But, I mean, really, the, the scene on the raft, Michael, is the one that is, uh, I mean, in my memory, I mean, sort of the signature moment of that novel. Yeah, and if, uh, the, if the novel is an anti-racist novel, the way some people claim, that's the, that's the scene you point to, right? Oh, sure, sure, sure. And I don't think it's anything that uh, simple, uh, but I still say it's a powerful scene. Um, Do you, go ahead, David. I've I, I read Huckleberry Finn along, you know, it was it was one of the first long novels that I ever read. And I hated the end, too. Have have hated it all my life to the point where when I reread the novel um, as a kid, I would just stop when Tom showed up. Yeah, um, I've read I've read the first seventy five percent of that novel ten times as often as I've read the the last twenty five percent. Right. So I wondered, maybe it's just me projecting, but I wonder if did 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 Twain just hate Tom Sawyer? Tom Sawyer is Twain, though. Is he? Yeah, I I think that's pretty well accepted that he's, more than Huck. Yeah, Huck Huck. Is typically gets identified with this tough kid whom Twain grew up with, who came from an environment very similar to Huck's. Yeah, I mean, plus, plus, yeah. think about think about Tom's relationship with adventure novels, and I mean, Tom is essentially a tale teller. Yeah, but by by the time you get to the end of it, there's just so much life and death, real stuff that Huck has gone through, and Tom Tom doesn't know anything. Let me. He's Let just, me make it, a controversial statement, David. Twain is not that great of a writer. He, he like the the closest thing he ever wrote to a great novel was Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and as we just said, it's seventy five percent of a great novel. Yeah. So but, I I am I'm, I'm perfectly willing to call that an artistic failure rather than something he's doing on purpose. Okay. Yeah. I, it's possible for someone to fail, but. That letter scene makes me cry, and I have a really hard time imagining the guy that 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 wrote that scene then bumbling so hard. I, I I've always had a problem with the end of Tom Sawyer for that for that let, reason. Let, listeners, if you want to revisit our uh, episode on Plato's dialogue Ion, we uh, talk about this precise problem at some length. Do we really? I have no memory of that. Oh yeah, yeah, that's his dialogue about you know why why it is that poets sometimes knock it out of the park and sometimes utterly flop. Oh, but we don't talk and, about Mark Twain. No, not about Mark okay. Twain, just about literary art more generally. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 I was about to say. <laughs> no, no. Oh, I'm sorry. No, I, that's not what I meant. Not what I meant at all. Um. Well, at any rate, David, I wanted to start with a pair of positive exemplars. Because in several frustrating conversations, usually on social media, you know, I hear, I hear about these conversations too. One negative common factor has been loyalty, whether to a public figure or more often to a party or to some other particular entity in the world. So in your mind, what makes loyalty, which, you know, we praise to some extent, so frustrating in public discourse when it's not our own loyalty? This is such an interesting question. I, I kind of sat for a second and was trying to think what a big part of it is that we do, because we don't see from the inside of someone else's loyalty, um, we don't feel the the weight of all of the other intangible things beyond the reasonability of it. And so looking at their position for us is merely uh, sort of a a rational or ethical exercise, um, typically based on, you know, a very few factors. Uh, whereas loyalty is a much more, often a much more holistic kind of, uh, kind of experience. Um, but one of, as I was, as uh, one of the first things that, that struck me though, um, in looking at your questions is thinking of loyalty as a species of love and then I thought about 1 Corinthians 13. And, you know, love is patient, is kind, is not jealous, it doesn't brag, it isn't arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it doesn't seek its own, it's not provoked, it doesn't take into account wrongs suffered. 
Um, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believe all th believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that's a kind of holy, righteous, purified love. But even our lesser loves are will often bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, and endure all things, and not take into account wrong suffered from the one who's loved. We're often so much more willing to see the perspective of and forgive those who we have a sense of loyalty to, whereas those who don't have that loyalty are counting the wrongs and see no particular reason to bear all things or endure all things or believe all things given the wrongs suffered. All right. Um, so often the way that manifests, often the way I've, I've observed that is when you know, you have a spouse who stays with another who is manifestly unworthy of their loyalty. Um, or a parent who keeps intervening for a child who is so, so not worth pulling out of the fire in that way. Um, and, and, that, and we haven't even gotten into the political sphere. Um, but I, I, I think you can, you can, if you see it as a species of love... Um, that and then and then ask um why is it so frustrating when people love those that we see so manifestly un, unhealthy for them to love or unworthy of the of the degree of of loyalty that they have the blindness of it um yeah and then move to the political sphere i think if if it, it, it feels like there's a lot of parallels there to me is is that is that is that is that bonkers, or or is, is that getting at the kind of question that you're asking? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, and I think one of the phenomena that I've been thinking about a lot is the rhetorical move where a, a criticism of a public figure is uh, their loyalty is only to this person. And, you know, here in the last two and a half years, it's almost always been Donald Trump instead of to an idea, instead of to principle, instead of to something more abstract, right? And generally speaking, I nod along with that. I mean, Michael, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. And I mean, I, I have an article coming out in America Magazine about the dangers of abstraction. So I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm right here with you. Like, I, I, I also criticize that. But also, I mean, do you, can you really be loyal to an abstraction? I don't know. That's what I'm trying to think through. Yeah, and we'll, we'll, <laughs> well, I know we get we'll get to a question that's much more like that in a few minutes. But well, loyalty to an abstraction is never tested because that abstraction is never going to let you down. Never going to give you up. Yeah, in all of the Rick Rolly kinds of things, um, you know, loyalty is. I, I see that as specifically a virtue that requires an object that is. That that can't that can be flawed. Loyal loyalty yeah. is a virtue that's only that's only present when tested and strained. So I mean, I mean maybe maybe the issue then is the X Y Z person who is loyal to Donald Trump has chosen an unworthy person to pledge their loyalty to. I mean, although David's already said, you know. That there's lots of people who love people who are unworthy of their love, and I'm not necessarily sure that I think that's a bad thing. I don't know. It's tough, right? Yeah. It can be a really tough thing to watch, especially in 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 a, in a familial or or marriage scenario, you know. And you want to say, "Bail, get out of it. They're bad for you. They're unhealthy for you." Um, but at the same time, one of the things you find lovable in this person you want to rescue may actually even be that 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 part of their personality that is making them loyal. It's part of the, it's part of the tragedy of loyalty. Lo loyalty is one of those weird directional virtues that's whether it's a virtue or a vice or not depends on which direction it's pointed. So with a lot of virtues, you can say, you know, be courageous. And that, that's a good enough rule, right? What, what courage looks like in a given situation, you know, that's up for debate. But be courageous is a, is a rule. 
be loyal is not a rule because you could be loyal to the wrong sorts of people and what could have been a virtue turns into a vice. So it, it's like you have to learn when to be loyal and when to betray, right? Something like that. Though, though... Although in the courage example, I mean, I, I could say, and I think I could make a valid case that, you know, uh, someone who decided to surrender his infantry unit uh, at the Battle of the Bulge uh would be good if he were fighting for the national for the third reich but bad if he were fighting for the british infantry but it's still <laughs> courageous then it's still courageous for him to surrender right because the courageous thing at that point is to stand up to his wicked society so be be courageous is a, a, a rule that is always true. It's just what courage looks like depends radically on what story you happen to be inhabiting, to use Alistair McIntyre's language. But loyalty, sure, sure. you can't just say be loyal. Because the, the fact of the matter is the, the warp and woof of our lives is made up of a series of people and causes and whatevers to which you can be loyal or disloyal. Right, and right. and it, it's kind of a matter of picking which ones you want to betray. Man, that's a bleak way of looking at it. I'm sorry. Well, but can you imagine someone, you know, who has no loyalty to anyone or anything? Yes, I can. Yeah? I mean, that that sounds bleak to me. But I, I guess what I'm saying is... And, and again, we're, we're, we're back to McIntyre, because what McIntyre says is the essence of tragedy, right, is conflicting loyalties. So if okay. this is indeed a tragic or pre-tragic or semi-tragic universe, everything you could do, or maybe not everything you do, but many things you could do are going to be betraying one person or group of people in order to be loyal to another person or another group of people. Okay. Let me ask you, this is a follow-up, Michael. I mean, what of the account that people sometimes give that my loyalty, for instance, to the GOP takes the form of opposing the person of Trump? I mean, is that, it seems like be loyal still remains a rule there. Yeah, well, yeah, but be loyal. Okay, so yeah, be loyal can still be a rule, but it's it's directionless. The the alternative is just somebody who's not loyal to anyone at all. And I I mean, David asked that. I can't imagine such a person, but there aren't very many of them, right? Sure, sure. Well, anyway, Michael, we've already kind of been in this territory, and before we completely steal your thunder, David has said, you know, that uh, loyalty is a species of love. Um. Uh, you and I both, you know, teach Scott Kreider's book, Office of Assertion, that deals at some length with arguments from definition. So do a little argument from definition for us. I mean, do you basically go with David here? Uh, or would you say that some other kind of disposition shares more common ground with loyalty but differs in some way? I think an important distinction is between loyalty and allegiance. And I think when you talk about um, when you talk about the people who are quote unquote loyal to Donald Trump, the, the GOPers who are loyal to Donald Trump, what they really are is allegiant to Donald Trump because there is a power differential in allegiance that's not there necessarily with loyalty. If loyalty is, as David says, a species of love, it's going to be mostly between equals or near equals. Allegiance has the same root as the word liege. You know, so it's yeah. it is it is a loyalty to somebody who's above you, somebody who who has power over you. Um, and as such, there's a kind of insincerity to it, don't you think? Or there's there's room for insincerity in it. So you can be allegiant to someone without meaning it. But you can't be loyal to someone without meaning it. Lo loyalty is like an expression of your inmost being in a way that allegiance is just not. Do you do you agree with that? I'm not sure. I'm trying to I'm trying to run some some cases in my head. David, what do you think? I, I like the I like the introduction of the power differential between loyal and allegiant. And even even if you're talking about loyalty to to a ruler. Um, I think you, there, there's still some sense in which loyalty is a virtue that, in which the one who possesses it 
sees the other as in some sense needing or depending on them. Um, which is not necessarily there in or critical to allegiance. Allegiance has more to do with um, with obedience and you know what side are you lining up on? I suppose you could line up on one side for venal reasons and still and still do it consistently. Um, but then it wouldn't necessarily be describing, an internal state, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, you're the you're the medievalist. How many how many uh, serfs were? They're vassals, I guess, in in your area. How many vassals were loyal to their lord versus allegiant to their lord? Yeah, you know what uh, I mean. I, I just yeah. I not that they didn't mean it exactly, but it didn't it didn't fill their hearts the way loyalty would mm-hmm. fill your heart. I was reading an article. This isn't. It's not European history. It was, uh, I was reading an article about uh, the the different principality, the traditional principalities of India after, um, after India ceased to be part of the British Empire and became independent. One of the things that happened in the early independence of India was the dissolution of those traditional principalities. And there were principalities in which the subjects fought that dissolution. And in fact, still to this day, in spite of the fact that no one compels them to do so, continue to honor and uh, show, show loyalty to, allegiance to, in ceremony, the descendants of those hereditary princes in spite of the fact that they have no political status anymore. So sometimes that is possible. <laughs> or you um, think of, and I don't know how much this ever actually happened, but you think of the stories of slaves who were set free in the American South and then fought to uh, defend their, their masters or former masters. Like, you know, there, there's an argument you could make that there, there's a false consciousness there. Uh, or there's an argument it, to be made that, that somehow in the midst of that terrible dehumanizing system, some sort of actual human bond formed. I mean, that, that's possible, but, but I mean, that's introducing slavery. And, you know, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't immediately assume that a, 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 a society with rigorous class structure and an aristocracy necessarily necessarily is 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 a state in which the the lower class is is chattel i I, but you know that maybe that's pollyanna of me but i'm not i'm not enough of an american to insist that only democracy can be a non-slave state no, and uh, I mean I'm not I'm not saying that either. And I, I should also clarify that I don't know how many of those stories I believe, but if there if there was one yeah. that happened, I, th- I think it it could suggest a move from allegiance to loyalty. I mean I'm thinking too of during uh, during the sub the subjugation of uh, some of the subjugation of the Scottish Highlands in the 18th century, when you know lairds would be outlawed, and hiding out in the farms of their tenants and uh you know the the tenants are still collecting their rents on top of the taxes of the the english and delivering them of their own free will to an outlaw laird who has no legal right to them and no capacity to compel them like that's such an inter- such an interesting and strange thing to me as an American to imagine someone being in that relationship to uh, a figure of 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 power, but apparently that's happened. Well, David, I, I want to turn from uh, political loyalty to ecclesial loyalty, and this gets especially interesting and especially fraught when we do bring the concept of loyalty and let's go ahead and bring allegiance as well to the church, which is both, you know, fallible and eternal, both sin distorted and salvific. You can go whatever direction you see fit with this, but I mean, what place does loyalty have 
when it comes to the life of the Ecclesia. Well, I wanted to, I, again, I sat down and thought, what are some of the different ways that the New Testament talks about life in the church? I mean, most fundamentally, it's piety or loyalty towards God. All right. Um, so, so there's, there's that relation. There's also the way in which uh, the church is spoken of as family, um, the way that Christ talks about those, um, those who hear him and obey his father being the real ones who are his mother and brothers and sisters. Um, so that there is, uh, there is a family element within church. So family, lo uh, the loving loyalty of family to towards one another. Um, Christians are also spoken of as ambassadors or as, as a holy nation. So this is a loyalty that one holds in a world of others with differing and competing loyalties. Um, you know, I, I don't feel I am loyal to my wife and my children you know, and you, Nathan, are loyal to your wife and your children, but I don't feel myself, I don't, like, like, those loyalties are in no way competing with each other. <laughs> We're not going to get a f into a fight over the fact that I don't feel particularly bound in my loyalty to, you know, your wife and kids. Okay. But in terms of, in terms of nation, um, the, those kinds of loyalties can often feel in in greater conflict and so when you know an apostle like paul talks about um christians being you know citizens of another country being strangers and aliens um that that loyalty that that comparison of christian loyalty church loyalty to nation loyalty um gets interesting um there's also loyalty to a particular kind of code of ethics or way of being. Um, I was already thinking about Wiglaf and the heroic code, which dictates the way that people behave. Um, and there's also the sense in which um, our ethical behavior as Christians is itself a kind of loyalty, which is called straight-up faithfulness. Um, so, so there's a lot of different kinds of loyalty that I'm seeing in the way the New Testament talks about the church um, and a lot of the ways in which church becomes difficult to be loyal to whether you're talking about an individual congregation or a larger tradition within the church um, or particular persons within a congregation and so forth um, it, you know, the, the, the problems of those loyalty, it might be interesting to say which of these frames of loyalty, loyalty to God, family loyalty, national loyalty, loyalty to a code, um, which of those is intention in this moment? It's interesting. I, and again, I, I'm, I'm working through this. This is why I'm so, uh, inarticulate this episode. Uh, again, I think of, certain cases, right, where people will leave a particular, you know, I would call it a congregation or even a particular denomination uh, because of, you know, what, the, what they identify as abstract principles, right? Uh, you know, if this church uh, does not ordain women, then I'm going to leave it. Uh, if this church, you know, has committed certain crimes, I'm going to leave it, so on and so forth, right? And in some of those cases, you know, I my own tendency is to applaud that. In other cases, you know, I, I tend to see it as uh, just a rank expression of ego uh, over the relationships that, you know, that person has built in that place. And again, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that if I, I started to get analytical with it, I could come up with some kind of criteria to describe why in the past I've made those judgments. Uh, but it's interesting to me that, uh, kind of like we've been talking about, uh, the same phenomenon that I would call loyalty in both cases sometimes does strike me as vicious and sometimes as, as virtuous. Um, can I, can I make an observation? Yeah, hit it. Loyalty and betrayal are not etymologically opposites. 
loyalty comes from uh, the old French word for law. Betrayal comes right. from the French word for to hand over. And I, I think there must be a sense in which, etymologically at least, you can betray someone while maintaining your loyalty to them. And, and you talking about churches made me think about this, because obviously there's a problem right now in the Catholic Church with these priests. And I, I wonder if faced with a molesting priest, maybe the best way to remain loyal to the church is to hand the church over. You know what I mean? Like you're still loyal to it. Uh, but at the same time, you recognize that because of its own actions, because of the actions of these priests or bishops, that maybe the best thing to do is to call the police, you know? Yeah. And I mean, in that case, I mean, it, it, it strikes me as fairly cut and dry, right? I mean, uh, and in my mind, listeners, I mean, if you have a different take on this, I'd be glad to read it. Go ahead and email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, but in those cases when, you know, the unrighteousness and i mean the criminality and the violence of the person within the body has reached that level then yeah i mean the only good thing to do much less the only loyal thing to do is to turn them over to the power of the law i, I don't dispute that for a moment i i think the cases that strike me as more troubling uh are the ones uh where it really is a matter of teaching or a matter of principle that is the case of separation, right? Uh, so it's not that, you know, someone within the church has committed a crime that everyone agrees is a crime and then somebody covered it up, but it's a matter of this church disagrees with me on this point of teaching and therefore I am going to go find a church that agrees with me to where the abstract principle becomes more important than the concrete history that a person has with that congregation or with that denomination or whatever else. I mean, does that, does that distinction make some sense? It, it does, but um, I'm going to ask an unpleasant question, which is, is that just because you don't think doctrine is what's constitutive of a church? I mean, this is, this is an say, argument say we more, very famously, this is an argument we very famously had uh, a few years ago that you, you think that what binds a church together is not so much shared beliefs as shared practices. So is the reason you see somebody leaving a church because they don't agree with some point of doctrine, is the reason that strikes you as so bad because the practice hasn't changed and it's just the doctrine that has? I'd say the practice hasn't changed and the real human history hasn't gone away. So, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I mean, what, what troubles me so much about loyalty, Michael, is that I find it in myself when it's most troubling if that makes any sense, I, uh, you know, I find myself more willing to become angry with people. And I, that, that's a bad way to phrase it. You don't will to become angry. I become angrier with people when they fail at loyalty than I do when they fail to, uh, you know, separate on a point of principle. Interesting. Is, is there a point of doctrine that would make you leave your church? Like if your denomination came out, to, to use an example that's much in the Twitter news, and said that the resurrection was, uh, you know, is really about the triumph of love over death and there wasn't a physical resurrection. Would you say that's a good reason to leave a church? I think my response to that would be to go to battle for the doctrine within the context of the assembly rather than to leave the assembly. So, I mean, I, it's interesting. I mean, because I come from a congregational tradition, the regional ministers and the, you know, the, for lack of a better term, the denomination uh, doesn't have a whole lot of doctrinal authority. I mean, basically they maintain the, you know, the preacher's pension plan. Uh, you know, certainly they are involved and they have a presence, but there's no formal authority. So, I mean, it's hard for me to say, you know, if, you know, for instance, the, regional minister of Georgia, you know, said that, you know, Serene Jones is basically right and Nathan Gilmore is wrong. My response to that would be to dispute that publicly because I can. Does that, I mean, does that distinction make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. Cause that, that large, that, that other authority is not constitutive of the church. The congregation is cause you're a congregationalist. 
Right, right. We don't have a magisterium, right? I mean, we 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 can certainly try to persuade each other, uh, yeah. but I mean, the, there's not an official uh, body of doctrine, so to speak, that the current regional minister can alter. Well, if your pastor did that, let's get it into the body. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, uh, again, my hunch is, and actually, I mean, this is more than a hunch because, you know, this has happened in a couple churches and I've been chased out of those churches, uh, is that I would dispute it publicly. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I can see where, I can see where this is going because, because for you, the, the boots on the ground congregation, which is that, that part of the church universal, that in which the family the, the that family frame of loyalty is most real and visceral is for like like that is it's it's much more readily there so i can see you saying yes there's this doctrinal dispute but i stay in my family and i fight for my family right and with that said like i said i've been chased out of two churches so i have left two churches over the last 20 years but been chased. So, I mean, it's, well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have been told that, you know, um, I'm, I'm not welcome there anymore. And, you know, for the sake of my family, largely, I mean, I don't know what I would have done uh, if I were, you know, if I weren't married, if I weren't a father. But, you know, I, I did make the decision in both of those cases that, you know, with my family involved, I mean, I had to, I had an obligation to protect them from the blowback from my disputes. Yeah. I think, I think, I think this is actually making, I think that makes some, that makes sense of, of the, the, the weight that you see in staying inside and continuing to dispute. Um, because I don't have that sense of personal connection to, the speaking heads of a denomination who are by the structure of the de- that denomination more constitutive of its identity as a church. Okay. That makes sense. Than, than the yeah. individual congregation, you know, you can be, you know, you can, you can be in the broader stone Campbell movement and disagree with every pastor of every other church in the stone Campbell movement. Oh, but, and I do, but agree with yours. Or at least be willing to live in the congregation with yours, <laughs> and yeah. and be chill, but um, not disagreeing with an an authority on the within the church who within that tradition of the church their their authority over teaching is constitutive. Disagreeing with that person's pronouncements becomes much more. Um, a, a, a much more identity compromising thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make some sense. That does make some sense. But it doesn't mean that with even within that other context, you wouldn't still have that sense of familial familial loyalty that would want you to still fight for the family, even if you see the head of the family drifting off in ways that are unhealthy for it. In the same way that you might find siblings in a house of neglectful or abusive parents um, sort of banding together to champion younger siblings. Yeah, that makes some sense as well. Well, anyway, Michael, I want to go philosophical before we run out of time here and ask you this. When someone does stand willing to cancel, uh, I've heard that phrase cancel culture a fair bit here recently, or otherwise to step away from historical entities, whether it be persons, communities, parties, celebrities, because of dedication to an abstract principle, be that liberty or diversity or equality or progress or anything else abstract, would it be more truthful to call that loyalty to a principle, or would you call it that something that is distinct from loyalty but related some other way? Nathan, I'm not going to answer that question. Uh, and instead, I'm going to point to two incidents. Uh, Albert Camus, uh, French Algerian, 
right, uh, committed to justice and equality and all the other things that French intellectuals in the 20th century were supposed to be committed to. And yet he said, I believe in justice, but I will defend my mother before justice. So the idea here is if the, the people pushing for freedom in Algeria do so by harming his mother, he is going to betray his abstract allegiance to justice in favor of his concrete allegiance to his mother. That's one version. Another version, uh, Victoria and I were just talking about this last night. You will remember that the comedian Louis C.K. got into some trouble uh, a couple years ago because it turned out that he had been asking women if he could masturbate in front of them and, uh, and then doing so, uh, which is gross and weird, and I condemn in no uncertain terms. There was an article <laughs> in The New Yorker a couple months ago about his friend or former, uh, former friend... Uh, Pamela C uh, Adlon, who who you might know as the voice of Bobby Hill, but also she was on his show, Louie. And then also she has a show of her own called, I think, Better Things. So she and Louis, were very, Louis C.K. were very close friends. They wrote together. Um, I think it's probably fair to say he really helped her with her career. The reason she has Better Things, I suspect, is in part because she uh, made such an impression on Louis. The article pointed out that as soon as he got in trouble for this, she cut all ties with him. And I didn't know how to feel about that. There, there's something you, you totally understand why she, why she did it. And, and let's, let's assume for a minute that it wasn't just about not losing her own career. Let's assume she had good motives and was disgusted by this. But the fact that they were that close of friends, they worked together and, and that he did this terrible thing and she just cut him out altogether. That, that seems terribly disloyal to me. I don't know what she should have done, but I know that I didn't, I didn't like reading about that. Uh, but likewise, I don't like, uh, I don't like Camus saying he'd defend his mother before justice because that leads to all sorts of terrible things as well. So when you have, on the one hand, your loyalty to your quote-unquote principles, and on the other hand, your loyalty to actual existent flesh and blood human beings... I think you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. I, I mean, maybe maybe that. Well, would you say, Michael, that life, life is, is guilt? guilt? Yeah, maybe, maybe that is. <laughs> maybe that is the deep tragedy of of human life is that when the pe the the people we love, the people we're loyalty to, can cross lines that make us feel disloyal to abstract principles, and we have to make a terrible decision. I don't know. I, I don't think I answered your question very well, but. I answered it kind of. The, your your example of the Louis C.K. and uh, what what was her name? Pamela Adlon. Okay, Pamela Adlon. That that one was interesting to me because I I I'd, I'd wondered about um, that this is this is a profoundly goofy illustration, but um, I draw I draw it from that incredibly deep piece of philosophical cinema, um, Total Recall. <laughs> Uh, the original one, uh, in which Ooh. in which Arnold Schwarzenegger discovers that the Kim Basinger character, who was supposed Sharon to be Stone. his wife, oh sorry, Sharon Stone, my bad, I can't keep them apart. Um, Wait, they did a remake of Total Recall. Yeah, they did with uh, Colin Farrell. With Kim did Basinger. I, did I get that That's one terrible. right? Did I get Colin Farrell right? I think it was Will Farrell. <laughs> I would watch <laughs> Will Farrell's Total Recall. Every day of the week. Anyway, uh, so uh, Schwarzenegger finds out Sharon Stone's not really his wife. Yes, Sharon Stone's not not only not that she's not really his wife, but that you know his life's a lie, and turns out she's an enemy, and then he shoots her with his you know Schwarzeneggerian quip, um, consider this a divorce or something like that. Um, but it 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 made me this this question made me think. What would what would you have to find out about someone to whom you were loyal? What could be revealed about that person that would be that would so fundamentally change your notion of who they are that it would completely undercut that loyalty? Yeah, I've actually been thinking about this a lot um, since the Me Too movement started, and you know, take take what I'm about to say in the spirit in which it's uh, intended. If I if if one of you got accused of something like that, 
what would my responsibility be? Would I, would, should I cut ties with you or should I stand up like those people do and say, well, you know, I've known, I've known him for 10 years and I've never heard him say anything like that. I mean, because that's dissatisfying too, right? And you have the sense that of course, Pamela Avalon knew that he was doing those things. I knew he was doing those things. It was, it'd been a rumor for years. I, I don't know. I like, I, I find that, I find that question very, very difficult. But, but I mean, but it's a real one, you know, we all love flawed people, right? That, that we would go to bat for, that we would, you know, in some ways champion for their own good, even if it was not necessarily the good that they desired for themselves. Maybe the thing to do is to find some way to be loyal without insisting that the person is innocent. And maybe that's what Pamela Avalon, maybe that's the, the needle she couldn't figure out how to thread. Yeah, he did those things, but also he's my friend and I love him. I don't know if that, that probably wouldn't have satisfied people, but maybe it would have satisfied her or maybe it would have satisfied me. I mean, for all I know, she is satisfied. And I really don't mean to criticize her because I think she's in a very understandable position and yet I'm dissatisfied by her attitude toward it. Well, considering the degree to which guilt by association unless there is a kind of immediate vocal repudiation um the way that these things escalate you know in the in in at the hyper speed of social media um it makes it very difficult to have real human relationships with actual people which i mean maybe maybe is a problem with that word cancel that nathan used because when when you talk about canceling somebody, it, it it's kind of a fun, abstracted way to talk about it. When what you really mean is kick them out of polite society. Right, right. I mean, I, I was using it in the uh, the internet slang. Sense. Oh, of course, yeah. But I mean, so yeah, Louis C.K. got canceled. Okay, uh, I'm Pamela Adlon. Uh, I'm going to cut Louis C.K. completely out of my life. That's not so quippy. I mean, that that sounds as painful as it must have been for both of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think back to to the 2008 election where Barack Obama, you know, whether for reasons that you approve of or not, cut ties with Jeremiah Wright, who, you know, as, as far as what I read, you know, was his pastor for a good number of years. And I, I really, I mean, that case, I mean, just because I've, I've never watched all that much of Louis C.K.'s comedy, that one hits me closer to home. Because that is, you know, depending on how you narrate it, it's either someone coming to realize that in order to serve in the capacity as president, he can't have this person in his life anymore, or someone deciding that because this person would be a drag on his electoral prospects, he's going to cut him loose. I mean, it, it, it reminds me of, of the last scene of uh, of Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth Part Two, right, where uh, Prince Hal... At that point, King Henry, you know, cuts Falstaff out of his life. And that that's yeah. a scene, I mean, even though Falstaff is just a farcical character, that scene always troubles me because, again, I mean, it is, it, it is dedication to a principle, dedication to an abstraction called kingship that costs him his connection to Falstaff. Yeah. And, yet, she- and yet there's times when we should all cut people out of our lives, right? There, there yeah, and people, I, I realize I just made Jeremiah Wright into Falstaff, and I'm not sure I intend to do there, that. There, there are people whose presence is toxic in our lives and keep us from being the sorts of people we should be, you know? And those people, you need to betray them, I suppose, if you want to think of it that way. I don't know. What if, I mean, Falstaff feels to me different, though, from... I would, I would cut Iago out of my life. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. That's one problem. I I, I would probably believe him. Falstaff (laughs) is a vice figure. He's a he's a figure of 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 weakness, a very human weakness, and it seems uh, that that feels like a different kind of thing. It seems like abandoning someone who who is who is vicious through weakness. If that if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that does. That does. I mean, I I feel sorry for Falstaff, but you know, Iago's 
you know, he's he's the snake in the grass. Um, you go after him with a rake. I, I have not read um, the Falstaff play you're talking about. He he um, is he still loyal to King Henry? Because I think that might be one difference. Iago is not loyal at all, and and that's why if if in Act Three Othello said, "Hey, screw you, man," uh, nobody would nobody would be sorry about it. But if you're feeling pathos, yeah, it enough. might be because it might be because that break is only on one side. That is actually one of the reasons why Iago is so dangerous, is because he is a flatterer who is donning the garb of loyalty um, in order in order to uh, in order to deceive and to harm. Um, the that kind of false loyalty uh, as as a weapon is is one is one wrinkle that we haven't really picked up today and don't have time for it, but but yeah. It's it's there too. I really think loyalty is a bit like faith, uh, in that it's really only as good as what you put it in. Yeah, that makes some sense. And you know, for all we know, uh about I, I really I don't want anybody to feel like I'm picking on Pamela Adlon. Um for all we know, something broke on the other side too. You you know what I mean? We don't know that whole situation. Yeah, that's 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 another thing which occurred to me as you were talking is the ways in which these things that would have played out privately and only those in kind of the inner circle in the know would have even known about it, you know, in the way that you sometimes hear about, um, you know, the 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 relationships and breaks in relationships amongst people, amongst entertainers, you know, in a previous generation, you know. But now it's all playing out live on camera. Everyone sees and everyone has the hottest of takes. Um, just a tough world to be a human in. And, and one I more agree. thought is we, we talk about loyalty to an abstract principle. And I'm not sure anybody actually experiences their loyalty as loyalty to an abstract principle. I suspect they experience it as instantiated in actual people and institutions. So when we say that Pamela Adlon was loyal to her um her feminism or whatever instead of to louis ck probably she wouldn't have experienced it that way probably she felt loyal to the women in her life to her daughters to um the comics many of whom she probably knew whom he assaulted you know what i mean yeah no i mean that's a very good point that is a very good point Well, at any rate, guys, we have uh, kind of gone all over the place as far as our uh, humanities professor's references here. Uh, but I want to give you one more chance to bring a text in. So, David, you start this relay, and you can pass the baton to Michael when you see it. Beyond the novels and plays and such that we've discussed already, uh, what's a good novel, film, poem, play, or other artifact that poses good questions about the nature, the dangers, the glories, and otherwise something interesting about loyalty? I'm going to cheat and and pitch two that are semi-related, um, P.G. Wodehouse and Dorothy Sayers, but both in the figure of the valet, um, Bunter in in the Lord Peter Whimsey novels of Dorothy Sayers and Jeeves in P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves and Worcester novels. Um, I am fascinated by the the notion of the the valet the butler the batman um the that that kind of subservient figure who is nonetheless um often often seems to be so so intimately close to uh this person the, the 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 employer that it's it's not exactly an employer employee relationship there's something else that's that's part of it. It's it's futile. It's it's frankly futile, and I I find that incredibly interesting. I, 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 I the the relationship dynamic, um in in stories that that to which that is central are, are fascinating to me. So I just I just put that out there as an interesting form, of to me a fascinating form of of loyalty that doesn't quite fit neatly into any of the categories we've been exploring so far. 
Michael, what have you got? I want to talk about an idea that Gabriel Marcel talks about a lot. Uh, our listeners may know I'm working on a book about him and translating some of his plays, so I'm, I'm pretty immersed in him. But one of his big ideas is creative fidelity, um, which is about commitment to another person. And commitment is tough because commitment involves you saying, I don't care how I feel. I don't care who I am down the road. I'm going to maintain my loyalty to, to you. But he's interested in it because creative fidelity creates. It, it, it's creative in the sense that it makes you who you are. You only have an identity in as much as you belong to another person. And you only belong to another person in as much as you tell them, I belong to you and you belong to me. In, in, in as much as you pledge your fidelity. So it's this entirely essential thing about being a human being. And yet it's a very difficult, even self-contradictory at times thing and he thinks ultimately um because of the fact of death and some other things that if your fidelity is not grounded in something eternal if god is not the third person in your in your pledge of fidelity that it's you know not fidelity at all but um that's just something i've been thinking about a lot lately just because i'm working so much with marcel very good well, guys, uh, that'll be it for today. Uh, David, I believe you're at the helm next week. What shall we be discussing? Well, I decided to be uh, a consistent person, um, loyal to my own self-definition in the, in the relationship that we have within this podcast, and have no idea. <laughs> nice, nice. But I'll come up with well, something. It'll be great. Well, listeners, uh, you'll just have to listen in and find out what it is next week. In the meantime, you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org on our Facebook page. Uh, of course, Michael and David and I each have Twitter accounts that you can follow. You can also email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com, and hopefully we'll be able to read your email uh, on an episode in the future. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson, and in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>